0: So this afternoon's Dharma talk is about developing the steady, graceful, and confident heart. And a lot of this uh, talk will have to do with the middle section of the Eightfold Path. Remember we mentioned that the Eightfold Path starts with ethics, or doesn't start, but one part is ethics, and then one part is mind development, and one part is wisdom, and in mind development, there's three parts. There's concentration, mindfulness and um, effort, skillful and wise effort, skillful and wise concentration, skillful and wise mindfulness. And so yesterday, Kara talked about effort, and um, I'm going to talk well, that'll get in there too, but also about concentration and mindfulness, all of it leading to wisdom, the last part of the path: skillful wisdom, skillful intention. Wise intention, so studying the heart, studying the heart, there there are a couple ways we can do this. Um, one way is exclusive, and one way is inclusive. So exclusive, I'm not doing the whole Dharma talk with it sounding like that. Do you know what what helps? Is it, but it seems better now, right? No, I think it was where the, so exclusive is, um, is really the, the practice that is going to drive me nuts. (laughs) Maybe I should use the other, the other uh, microphone because it drove you nuts yesterday, right car? Did you get it to work? Did you get it to work? Thank you. this one either <laughs> in Buddhism there's three personality types and they're related to the three uh, roots of suffering and it's said that we have a tendency towards one of them so either a tendency towards aversion or grasping or confusion which one do you think I am? <laughs> We're good at seeing problems, so it's one of our strong points. <laughs> so, with concentration, this is beautiful. I love this. Um, <laughs> with concentration, we uh, we steady the mind and the heart by choosing a, a single object for the mind. To pay attention to or for awareness to settle on and we pretty much aren't paying attention to other things we're, we're just um putting them aside and and turning back to this one thing and so the breath can be used as a as a concentration object and all you do is you just you're with the breath and if something else happens just let it go come back to the breath let it go come back to the breath or a mantra a mantra, anything else comes up, let it go, come back to the mantra. Or even loving kindness is technically a concentration practice because you're, what you're coming back to over and over again is love. That's a love or, or friendliness, however you like to frame it. And concentration uh, feels good. This studying or, or co- uh, collectedness feels good, it feels unifying. It, it, we feel um like we're we're more of one piece we're not all over the place and and um yeah, we tend to like it when it happens <laughs> the The trick though is we can't make it happen, <laughs> so we try right we're like, okay, I'm gonna stay with the breath now or I'm gonna stay with the body, and um what happens? You get stressed out, right? But most of us try it. You have to try it first and and see for yourself. Um, You shouldn't feel too bad. I read something a while ago. It says, uh, we humans are worse at concentrating than a goldfish. (laughs) Humans today lose their concentration after eight seconds. In the year 2000, it was 12 seconds. We've gone downhill. (laughs) While the goldfish averaged nine. (laughs) I find myself wondering how they test a goldfish's <laughs> concentration <laughs> I, there's no um, description of the experiment on that page um, but mostly I tell you that to just say you know relax it's, it's okay if it's, if it's not coming together like you think it should it just takes time it takes a lot of time and it, and it actually takes relaxation because the very trying to like concentrate the mind creates stress that then makes the mind more turbulent and less concentrated. It kind of messes with us, right? We're so used, I think Car was talking about this yesterday, we're so used to getting what we want through willpower. And meditation just messes with us because every time we try to do it through willpower, we hit... We hit the wall. It's great. It's like one big Zen koan or one big Zen riddle. But this studying the heart is great because it's, um, it helps us find a refuge and a home on this planet. It helps us give a place to rest and kind of the wildness. Many of you have described the wildness of the heart and the mind, and um, having this single object to come back to helps calm, steady, and rest our very weary minds. And so there's power in this, there's power. And it comes from this ability to let go of the thinking mind and to let go of, of putting all our trust and faith in the conceptual mind, the mind that's going to figure things out. It's a real radical renunciation, you could say, this letting go of, of the, the thinking mind as our refuge, where we're going to find our answers, and turn um, towards, you could say, the embodied mind and heart and find out what it has to tell us this is that vast unknown territory i talked about the first night walking meditation too can be great it's a concentration practice you're coming back to the body moving you know and you can and you can feel the steadiness of it let yourself feel the steadiness of just connecting to the earth one foot connecting to the earth the other foot it's a rest you can rest there so um, the challenge though is that concentration practice doesn't really solve the human predicament it's a very it's a helpful um, quality to develop and it gives us some refuge and some rest but it doesn't solve the human predicament, the basic human predicament that we live in this world of, um, of constant change. We live in this wild world. We live in this world where pleasantness goes away and where unpleasant things come our way. And where there's this constant, you, we, you could say this constant movement of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And it goes on and on and on, and and we can't control it. And we want to. That's the basic human predicament. And so what happens, as I was talking the first night, is we have arguments with reality. <laughs> so if something's happening, or there's some experience. You could say there's some sense experience, and... Um, and we don't want it to be the way it is. If it's pleasant, we don't want it to go away. If it's unpleasant, we want, we, we want it to go away. We're like, get rid of this. If it's neutral, we're like, oh, you want to pay attention to you. You're not important. And so this is how we kind of try to make sense of this this realm, this universe that we've been born into is like, how can I make it stay pleasant? How can I get rid of the unpleasant? How can I kind of just deny what I don't really want to see? And, and that's, that's how we try to do it. And those are the three roots of suffering. Right? <laughs> so we have a little bit of a problem here. <laughs> it's pretty choppy. And life is, when, when we live life, basically live life, you could say, controlled by pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feeling tone. You know, because that's what we're reacting to the pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality of an experience. The mind is reacting to that, heart's reacting to that. Um, life feels kind of choppy, it feels not graceful, ungraceful. So, how do we develop the more graceful heart, the more graceful mind, and this grace having a quality of strength and confidence? That's what we're trying to figure out here. Oh, by the way, Byron Katie said that if you argue with reality, you will lose 100% of the time. (laughs) Check it out. I'm so interested in this, really. It's, it's a huge part of my practice. I'm just so interested in how my heart and mind respond to changes of the world and how long it takes me to go from reactivity to gracefulness. or to you, Gracefulness also could be said to be totally sitting in the way things are. So I got lots of ex- um, um, ex- experience like in the last week before, week and a half before the retreat. So I have a garden and um, vegetable garden and, and some flowers too. But I like to grow, I've grown my own vegetables for 35 years now, ever since I was a work retreat in the, in the garden here at IMS in 1985, before most of you were born. <laughs> <laughs> So um, I love growing my own vegetables, and I take pride in that. And um, anyway, so about 10 days ago, um, the vegetables started disappearing, and something was eating them, and and, um, couldn't figure out what it was. Um, There were no deer prints, so it couldn't have been the deer. They couldn't have done it without deer prints, and there was no... (laughs) and then we were trying to think of everything you know there was no holes in the garden fence so I was like what is getting in my garden fence and eating and leaving this is a tall fence this is like eight feet tall where I live they have to be that tall and um, so every morning I'd go out and like more of my garden would be eaten so the first day this creature chowed on the broccoli Okay, broccoli's gone. Right next day, topping off the carrots, and then topping off the beets, and then the collards. Loved the collards; just went in. You know, then the beans, and <laughs> so every morning I would go out, and I'd be like, "Well, first of all, I'd be disappointed—like disappointed, angry, um, yeah, upset." And and then I just watched my mind through the day. Of course it would go back to it, you know, there was some obsessing because I didn't want my garden to be all eaten. This was lost, pleasantness going away, right? And and I would watch when in the day I would feel it. it'd be like I would line up and I'd be like, Oh, this is the way it is now. And the and the and the the argument would with reality would stop. <laughs> The argument, because all the disappointment and the upset was arguing with the reality that my garden vegetables were gone. And um, and then what was interesting, so this happened every day, because it took us a while to figure out what it was. Does anybody have a guess? Groundhog. <laughs> <laughs> so the groundhog was making a little hole and getting in. So it took us like four days to figure that out. And then we tried plugging the hole. No, groundhog is really. And then we got a cage, but the cage was too small. So the groundhog would get in, eat the cantaloupe, and get out, because his butt, I think, would stick out. Yeah. So this went on like a number of days, right? It was probably a good week till we caught, or eight days till we caught the groundhog. We got, had to get a bigger trap, have a hard trap. <laughs> no, we named him Chocolate. Did you know that baby groundhogs are called Chocolates? So we named him Chocolate, and Chocolate now lives 30 miles away from us. (laughs) But the point of the story, (laughs) the point of the story was that each day it was so interesting, it got easier and easier to let go. Because I got practice, right? So each day you know, I would go out, more of the garden would be gone and of course I was disappointed this was but each day the time it took me to say, Oh, okay, this is the way things are now and quit arguing with reality got shorter. So hopefully there's only one. <laughs> <laughs> so life gives us all these opportunities to practice. And meditation practice is really great because it, it gives us like this um, like we're not doing anything else but just watching how the mind argues with reality and how can we let go and land in reality without arguing. So what I'm calling arguing is greed, hatred, and delusion. It's grasping, pushing away, and spacing out. So with this practice of learning how to um, land fully in reality, not argue with the way things are, um, we notice that our hearts and our minds get more flexible, and they soften, and the demands the demands of our mind and heart that life be a certain way become much more flexible so we're able to um, accommodate to the truth of the way things are, the truth of, of life. Um, Emma Chodron put it a great way. Let's see if I can find that. This is from Shambhala Sun Magazine. She said, "Years back, I took a trip along with my granddaughter, who was six years old at the time. It was such an embarrassing experience because she was being extremely difficult." She was saying no about everything, probably an aversive type. She was saying no about everything, and I kept losing it with this little angel who opened my door. So I said, okay, Alexandria, this is between you and Grandma, right? You're not going to tell anybody about what's going on. You know all those pictures you've seen of Grandma on those books? Anyone you see carrying around one of those books, you, you don't tell them about this. <laughs> I love, I love that, because first of all, she's telling all of us, right? <laughs> There's no defensiveness in her writing, really. What she's just talking about is how it is to be human. And she's exploring it. So she says, the point is that when your cover is blown, it's embarrassing, when you practice meditation, getting your cover blown is just as embarrassing as it ever was, but you're glad to see where you're still stuck because you would like to die with no more big surprises. On your deathbed when you thought you were a saint, whoever, <laughs> you don't want to find out that the nurse completely pushes you over the wall with frustration and anger. Not only do you die angry at the nurse, you die disillusioned with your whole being. So if you ask why we meditate, I would say it's so we can become more flexible and tolerant to the present moment. More flexible and tolerant to the present moment. We stop arguing with the present moment. You could be irritated with a nurse when you're dying and you say, you know, that's just the way life is. You let it move through you. You can feel settled with that, and hopefully you even died laughing. It was just your luck to get this nurse. (laughs) <laughs> can you can you feel the shift that we're aiming towards? It's it's one of um, more lightness, gracefulness. It has a sense of lightness and this sense of flexibility. And we're we're here. We're totally landed in reality, and yet. It's lighter, it's more spacious. You could say we don't take things as seriously, but that could also be misunderstood. It's really about the teachings of not self. Now I'm going down tangent here. Not self and, and what we start to see through our practice is how greed and hatred. And grasping and delusion, denial, are actually the building blocks of what we call self. And they're the, the, they're the you could say, the prison that's created, the prison of self. So when, these, when, we're, when we're dominated by these energies, we get very wrapped up, wrapped up in ourselves. And, and, it, and it's thick it's like opaque we have this opaque wall between us and the world it's, we, we protect ourselves we're actually trying to protect ourselves with that energy and life is serious and it's heavy and it's darker but when we have moments of what is called not self in Buddhism and you've all experienced this greed are grasping, aversion, and delusion are in abeyance, you could say. They're not active. And the mind and heart are open and spacious and flexible, graceful, able to connect with reality. The heart is open, the mind is open. That's all that we're talking about with not-self. It's not the confined, the confined self. It's the light. We're talking about the lightness and the ease. But, after I talk about all the lightness and the ease, how do we get there? There's only one way to get there. It's to go through it all. You can't try to bypass. I mean, you can, but... but. (laughs) It won't work. You won't land in reality, you'll land somewhere up there. You can't uh get there through the by test. My 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 teacher Michelle would say when people would ask about that kind of thing, she'd say, Drive through that town. <laughs> so what is it that's coming what's the argument we're having with reality? So what's coming up? If it's grasping wanting, wanting, what's that like? Can we meet that experience? Or if it's hating or or, um, aversion, anger, what is that experience like? So we turn towards it. And as um, Joanna was saying this morning, when there's, a, when there's an afflictive emotion, any emotion, but I'm going to first talk about what we call afflictive emotions. Those are the ones that cause turbulence. Greed, hatred, and delusion are the kind of umbrella of those. One time when um, the Dalai Lama was talking at Smith College, I went to hear him, and somebody asked him what's the most important thing in life, and he said... For a serious meditation practitioner, the most important thing is learning how to work with afflictive emotions. So it's central in our practice. And Carl was talking about it yesterday, unwholesome emotions, unwholesome mind states, afflictive emotions. So when they come along, our usual thing is like, go away, you're bad, I'm a bad meditator, I shouldn't be feeling this. I should not be feeling anger. I should not be feeling lust. I should not be feeling aversion, whatever it is. But no, you turn towards it. How is it in the body? Is there some place in the body that you can connect with it and get to know it well, get intimate with it? We want to get intimate. And then you can notice what it does in the mind, right? So let's say it's anger and there's this, tightness here right and then we can notice that anger has thoughts such as revenge thoughts or self-righteous thoughts they're such a jerk thoughts (laughs) so you can notice kind of what your mind does but we don't really care about the particular story that's not where we're going for we're going for what is an emotion or how um, does an emotion um, grab me and hold me and how can i let it open up, right? So how do you feel in the body? What happens in the mind? And does it change as you're with it? Sometimes it'll change. Not always. Is it permanent? That's a really good question. When we're caught in a strong emotion, whether it's afflictive or wholesome, we tend to think it's permanent. Have you ever noticed that? Like when you're afraid, you are sure you're going to be afraid the rest of your life. <laughs> I mean, obviously that's not true, but, but that's the trance. So emotions put us into a trance. So we start to understand the trance. We, we see it. We look at it. Oh, okay. Wow. When I land in this place, I'm sure that person's a jerk. Totally sure even if they're my partner, right? <laughs> and like, and like they, they can never redeem themselves. You're sure of it. And then when you come out of the trance, it's like, oh, huh, you know what? I said that thing that wasn't very nice. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I had something to do with this, right? Um, but when we start to really do all that mindfully, you start to learn uh, a healthy mistrust of these stories that we create, when we 're caught in an afflictive emotion, and that 's really helpful because then at some point you 're caught in let's say you have like deep fear that keeps coming back and and um really takes you for a ride you know out into vast outer space where nobody loves you and uh, i 've experienced that one <laughs> so so after you know, you've been mindful of a lot of mind states, you might be in that space and somewhere and you might go, you know what, actually, this isn't permanent. I can let it be. That's a big moment. And so we start to learn how um, we can be with places within us that, that we've been afraid of and that we've had to run from. I worked many years with that kind of fear. It was like spinning in, in outer space and nobody could, nobody was going to find me. <laughs> yeah. What is it? Major Tom, <laughs> that song, you know, where he goes flying out into outer space and he loses control, <laughs> I mean, the control center and he's gone. Um, I'm not scared of that place anymore. And when I'm not scared of it, then it doesn't dominate me. And then it doesn't control me. And then I can be much more graceful with life when it arises. But it's because I I spent a lot of time exploring it. The trick also, though, with, with these intense emotions is if we have to learn how to get out before we can... We can really explore them. So with that mind state in particular, I had to learn how to get out of it before I actually um, explored it. Because if I couldn't get out of it, it wasn't very safe to explore it. I was just going to suffer a lot because I was going to believe it all, right? I was going to believe how alone I was and and everything. So we, I was talking to somebody today. I was saying something about, like, we're not... You don't go deep-sea diving until you know how, how to get back to the surface, right? You don't go scuba diving unless you know how to get back to the surface. So a lot of our practice with real intense stuff might be, how do I get back to the surface? How do I come out of this trance and stabilize? What do I need to do to come out of the, the trance of this um, afflictive emotion? And that's good practice. So really trust that. And it might be you go for a run, it might be you go look at the flowers in the garden. If you're in the hall, it might mean you stand up or, or you look out the window or you can do what you need to do to take really good care of yourselves. And when afflictive emotions come along, if they're really intense, really make your practice like how do I how do I get out of this? And then when you're confident you can do that, then then you go then you go in the middle of it and you're like, well, what is this? How does this work? What is this intense experience? What's its nature? Oh, it's impermanent. It tells me all kinds of crazy stories. There's a lot of delusion in it. You see, there's a lot of delusion inflicted emotions. And then pleasant emotions too. So, what happens with this process as afflictive emotions start thinning out a little bit? We, we, we. Um, you guys know what I mean by afflictive emotions. It's clear now, right? Like anger, hatred, desire, grasping, greed, envy. The ones that make your mind turbulent, <laughs> or your heart turbulent. Um, as as we as we learn how to um, be with them, not argue with them, but be with them, let them be, give them some space. You could say that the the wall that they create over our hearts um, starts to thin out. And what happens then is that thins, we start to feel more in touch with the world. There's not so much um, alienation from the outside world or from others. It's, and then our hearts start to, um, these wholesome qualities that Carl was talking about yesterday, love and compassion and appreciative joy and equanimity, concentration, calm, tranquility, joy, these qualities start to have room to shine. They're not barricaded behind greed. Hatred and delusion. And so then, and, and I'm sure some of you have had some pleasant emotions, right, in the last few days. <laughs> we talk so much about the afflicted ones, and then sometimes people are like, well, I'm actually having a good time. Like, <laughs> am I like doing something wrong? <laughs> no. Sometimes, let's just set the record straight, sometimes meditation is pleasant. and so sometimes we have retreats where not a lot of afflictions coming up and what um, is coming up is peace and we're feeling um kind of you could say the fruits of our practice we're feeling um the joy the peace the calm that's great and you don't have to um Go on an archaeological dig to see if you can find some, you know, dig up some dirt <laughs> on yourself. <laughs> Sometimes it kind of alternates. We have periods where there's lots of equanimity, and they alternate with periods where um, it's more turbulent. And they're both important. It's that the. the calm times it's it's strengthening right to be able to sit and calm to sit in joy to know your own capacity for peace and then it's also great for your practice it's actually also very confidence building to go through the storms The storms of afflictive emotion that come through, to go through them and to see that you can survive them, that you can learn how to, um, you could say, gracefully manage them, gracefully be with them. And then you don't have to be so afraid of your life. This is the confidence that I was talking about that gets built. And sometimes gracefulness is just admitting how much you hate something. So um, you don't have to, I want to really warn against spiritual uh, um, correctness. (laughs) SC, don't be SC, spiritually correct. So spiritual correctness is when you have an idea of how you're supposed to be as a spiritual person, and then you try to make yourself be that way, and you beat yourself up when you're not that way and um it's 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 just not useful and it's very painful um and it happens (laughs) but look out for it you say oh yeah there's spiritual correctness you know watch out for the words should that's a good sign that, that that that's happening yeah it's painful To me, the true gracefulness is is the willingness to be um, honest about what our experience is. It's like we're trying to become more and more human, or we're trying to open more and more to being human. We had hoped for something else, perhaps. Perhaps you came, you're hoping that you would transcend somehow. (laughs) And... um, there is a quality of transcendence in the in the increasing lightness you could say but it's it's totally we're totally connected to being human. And that's a relief. That's a relief. So I um right now I'm working on um gracefulness with my knees so a a couple months ago i did this retreat in northern um, new mexico and i did a lot of sitting under ponderosa pines it was fabulous right so you know my knees felt fine no problem and then um, i'm i'm on the plane coming home and i turned (laughs) just right (laughs) and my knee went zing you know i was like ah so the last couple months, I've, I've, my knees um, haven't been as I would wish, and so that's that's where I get to practice, right? And so pretending, for example, that I'm okay with that, that would be spiritual correctness. Being willing to feel what I feel in relationship to my knees—that's being human, and so so. I actually don't spend a lot of time perseverating about them, but sometimes when I'm walking and they're hurting, um, one worse than the other, but, but they're hurting, I, um, yeah, I have some aversion. <laughs> it's like, oh. And then occasionally I'll get into the like, future thoughts about what this means about my knees for the rest of my life, right? That, that's um, Painful. But I don't do that too much because, really, after meditating for a long time, I just know that's such a waste of time. And um, it's just a suffering path. And really, all we have to really deal with is the present moment, right? And so sometimes it's like, okay, this is the way it is right now. It's like, ah. And then sometimes it's like, no, I don't want it to be this way. I can't claim perfect equanimity with my knees. But um, I know it's a lot better than it would be if I wasn't meditating. It's a lot different. And then the other thing we start to see with, with this practice of being with things as they are, landing in reality, um, is that we make better decisions about life when we land in reality. So when we're making decisions about our life from from afflictive emotions, life our lives tend to get a little messy. So just back to my knees. This is a small example, but if I, you know, if when I'm aversive to my knees being in um, the way they are now, or and or in kind of denial about it, right? I do stupid things to my knees. I push them, right? And then they're worse. Like a week ago I was like, oh they they seem better. So I I said, Oh well I, I think I'll just try a little cross legged sit. So I sat for like fifteen minutes on a near marsh near my house and later that afternoon, zing, just like, you know, it's like, hmm, all right. Landing in reality tells me I cannot sit cross legged. This is the first Dharma talk I've done in this whole not cross-legged, right? (laughs) It's like, this is the way things are. And so when we land in reality, we make better decisions because we're seeing more clearly. When we're in affliction or denial, delusion, we're seeing, um, we're not seeing so clearly. So our lives get a little bit more cleaned up when when we can... um, Really be with the way things are. Oh. But we don't go there easy, do we? We do not go there easy. One of my favorite stories about. I might have read this here a few years ago. I'm not sure, but this is so great. This is how this story encompasses our whole spiritual path. And it's from Joseph Goldstein's book on mindfulness. In India, I was living in a little hut about six feet by seven feet. It had a canvas flap instead of a door. I was sitting on my bed meditating and a cat wandered in and plopped down on my lap. I took the cat and tossed it out the door. Ten seconds later, it was back on my lap. We got into a sort of dance, this cat and I. I tossed it out because I was trying to meditate to get enlightened. (laughs) But the cat kept returning. I was getting more and more irritated, more and more annoyed with the persistence of the cat, arguing with reality. Finally, after about a half hour of this coming in and tossing out, I had to surrender. Mm. Remember that word that Joanna used? I had to surrender. There was nothing else to do. There was no way to block the door. I sat there. The cat came back in and it got on my lap. But I did not do anything. I just let go. 30 seconds later, the cat got up and walked out. (laughs) That is the whole spiritual path. Yeah. we argue, we argue, we argue we let go, we surrender and then things shift so I've, I've, I've learned to love the arguing you know, just to, to love the process and to be as accepting as I can of how long it takes for me to land in reality, to be graceful with whatever is true. You gotta love us poor humans, (laughs) struggling to do the best we can. (laughs) Uh, Here's another great story, this one I love too. This is from Paul Reps, a Zen teacher. In the early 50s, Reps, who was then in his 40s, had traveled to Japan en route to visit a respected Zen master in Korea. He went to the passport office to apply for his visa and was politely informed that his request was denied due to the conflict that had just broken out in Korea. Frustrated, Reps walked away from the counter and sat down quietly in the waiting area. He had traveled thousands of miles to a foreign land with a plan to study with this master in Korea. He was deeply disappointed, perhaps even angry at being told he could not complete his journey. He realized that at that moment there was not only a war starting in Korea, but also another one raging inside of himself. Recognizing that his internal conflict had the potential to erupt and create conflict in the world around him, he wondered what to do. Pausing for a few moments of mindful breathing, he then reached into his bag, mindfully pulled out his thermos, and poured himself a cup of tea. With a calm and focused mind, he watched the steam rising, swirling, and dissolving into the air. He smelled the fragrance of the tree, tasted its bitter flavor, and enjoyed its warmth and wetness. Finishing his tea, he put his cup back on his thermos, put his thermos in his bag, and pulled out a pen and paper upon which he wrote a haiku poem. Mindfully, he walked back to the clerk behind the counter, bowed and presented him with his poem and his passport. The clerk read the poem and it brought tears to his eyes. Looking up deeply into the quiet strength in Rep's eyes, the clerk smiled, bowed with respect, picked up Rep's passport and stamped it for passage to Korea. Rep's haiku read, Drinking a cup of tea, I stopped the war. Gracefulness. One time I read this at a retreat, and I got a note from a retreat, and eating my orange, I fought a war. (laughs) 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 Which I love just as much. (laughs) Because it's real. And you could even hear in her haiku, haiku the... um, the gracefulness of accepting that that was what was going on for her. So this gracefulness comes from this non-resistance to the way things are. It's, it's, from it's the no becoming a yes that Chaz talked about. So in the garden, no, 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 no. Yes, this is the way things are. And so we'll find this resistance, this no. We have to get to know it as well because it really is part of the practice. You'll find all kinds of different forms of um, resistance arise. Resistance to reality because reality is so wild. (laughs) It's crazy. It's also beautiful and mysterious and fresh and new and vibrant and alive. Kind of a mixed blessing. We're trying to figure out how we can be in touch with that wildness and feel okay. I love one student in one group, he... he. Um, they um, described resistance very well. With a, they said that they were just meditating along. Everything was fine, and then this thought was, "Okay, I'm ready to go home now." <laughs> <laughs> and there was nothing in particular going wrong. It, it was just like, but it's like little resistance. Pop up, <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> I know for me in my early practice the way the resistance would show up is um, I would fall asleep every sitting like about 25 minutes in and it was like my mind would be like I am done with reality and I would just go to sleep and um, I had so much aversion to it I thought I was just such a bad meditator um but when I look back or when I've looked back at that I'm like you know what that was actually just the right timing like my heart was just taking care of me Like that was actually all the reality I could handle you know I had enough energy to do 25 minutes of reality and then I just didn't have the energy for it anymore and then I would do some walking meditation and get re-energized and, and come back and that that was just fine. We tend to have this time frame for our, our hearts, our minds, that's not realistic. We tend to have this idea that, that everything should go at um, supersonic speed. That, and and um, we tend to put a lot of pressure on our hearts and minds to open very quickly Right? Some of you have been putting a little pressure on yourselves, not like okay, like come on. It's like you're saying to your heart, like come on, get it together, like now. And and your heart's like, whoa. <laughs> you know, I got some of my ways of doing things, and you're not really respecting that. <laughs> the heart is a is a. Um, it's a wild creature. I think our hearts are a little bit like feral cats. We had a feral cat at our house um, that we got from the land here. She was like six months old and she never quite tamed up. Um, and we, we, we called her La Feroza, which means a furious one in Spanish. And... Um, The thing about feral cats is if you try to move in on them, they're out of there, right? If you have an agenda, they're out of there. They set the agenda. And if you wait and give them all the space that they need, um, that's your best bet for getting a relationship, right? Your heart's the same way. If you go to your heart with an agenda for how it's going to get fixed, it's going to be out of there. It's going to be, no. It's it's going to experience that as threatening, just like a feral cat does. So you have to wait with your heart, you know, sit in the living room (laughs) with your heart, and um, let it come to you. it's about listening it's more about listening than like we want to boss our hearts we are so bossy with our own hearts and minds again i use the word interchangeably so we're going to we try to learn how not to be bossy but how to listen because there's a lot of wisdom in there there's a lot, of, lot you know you've survived you've made it this long that means there's a lot of wisdom in your, in your mind and heart. And um, listening to it, uh, you, we, you can start to work things out together rather than trying to um, make it uh, be fixed the way you think it should be. So give, give what comes up, give it space. Give your heart space, give your mind space. Respect it. Work on holding the truth as it arises in your hearts, minds, bodies. Sometimes there's like mantras we can use that, that are helpful, or little phrases, like you've heard me say a number of times, this is the way things are right now. When I find myself arguing with reality, sometimes that's what I say, oh, this is the way things are right now. And I see if it takes, you know, like if, that, if I land in that. And if I do great, and if I don't, then I attend to what's coming up. It's like this is the way things are right now. Yeah, and I hate it. Okay, can I be with that? That's gracefulness, too. Hmm. Or some people ask, is this moment okay? I went through a period of poor health a number of years ago with kind of days that were okay and days that weren't so great, and the days that I'd be having um, symptoms. Sometimes I just ask myself, is this okay? And usually it's like, yeah, I can, I can handle this. What well, wasn't okay was all the future thoughts, right, and all the, the stories I told around it, but is this okay? So that, or um, do I have a problem right now? Do I have a problem right now? It's another little question you can just throw in and see what happens. But I like this is the way things are right now. Try it on. This is the way things are right now. Another example of gracefulness, um, Thich Nhat Han, uh, most of you know that he had a stroke a number, a few years ago, it's been now probably a, a very major stroke, and so he's been quite um, limited in what he can do since then. And apparently that after months of being in a coma and then months where he couldn't communicate very much, just kind of nonverbally, he could finally say a few words, and this is what he said. In, out, happy, thank you, so happy. That's gracefulness, like it was right there with reality. Thank you, so happy. And Winnie the Pooh says... (laughs) What day is it? asked Winnie the Pooh. It's today, squeaked Piglet. My favorite day, said Pooh. <laughs> My favorite day. Well, maybe that's enough for today. I'll end with one other. Quote that I like a lot somebody named John Bennett you've come to see that suffering is required and you no more want to avoid it than you want to avoid putting your next foot on the ground when you are walking in the spiritual path joy and sorrow follow one another like two feet and you come to the point of not minding which foot is on the ground You realize, on the contrary, that it is extremely uncomfortable hopping all the time on the joy foot. Joy and sorrow follow one another like two feet. That's gracefulness to be able to to live that truth. So please watch out for spiritual correctness. Name it so that it doesn't catch you and doesn't cause suffering and doesn't cause bypassing, which doesn't lead to a mature, grounded, useful spirituality. We want to be fully human, because then we can be useful in this world. We can look out there and see what needs to be done. Let's just sit for a minute.